This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. And for the last 10 chapters, we've seen the multifarious, multifaceted, many-sided Jesus Christ. We got to see he was the the best sacrifice, he was the, the best high priest, he was better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses. And for 10 chapters, we've been really presented what a blessing that Jesus Christ is for us. Yes, he died for our sins, but even he's even so much more than that. All the promises of God. So this is what we're looking at. And here is, if I could kind of plot this on a, a sorry to bring you back to mathematics, uh, grade school mathematics, but if I could plot this on a line graph, you, there's, there's an apex. We're at the peak. And, and then from this point, we kind of come down on the other side of that peak and we coast. But what we do is we gather the evidence. We're presented with the evidence of the last 10 chapters. And now it's up to us to make a decision. It's up to us, what are we going to do with the evidence that we've been presented with? And what we do is we respond in faith. This morning's message is titled, Profiles in Faith. And we're going to see a bunch of men and women, people like you and I, with with frailties like you and I, who have responded in faith. And I really want you to be inspired this morning. I really so much looked forward to teaching this chapter. It's all about faith. What is faith? And for some of you who've been believers for a while, as we speak about faith, you're already practicing this, and you're going to say, oh, that makes sense. Speaking of faith, reminds me of the fishing trip, not the Calvary Crossfields fishing trip, but the fishing trip that the priest, the evangelist, and the minister took. And the three of them are in a boat. And they've been trying to catch fish all morning. For hours and hours go by, and they catch nothing. It kind of reminds me of the Crossfields fishing trip two Saturdays ago. I know I'll pay for that later. <laughs> so the evangelist decides, you know, it's been hours. I've got to go to the bathroom. So he steps out of the boat, and lo and behold, his feet, the water, it's only ankle deep. And he's walking on water, and he's splashing. Splash, 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 as he walks to the shore. And he does what he needs to do. And he goes back on the shoreline, and he goes towards the boat, and he's walking on the water again. Splash, 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 splash. He gets back in the, in the boat. So the minister t- says, you know, i got to go too. It's been a long morning. So he gets out of the boat, ankle deep in water. Splash, 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 splash to the shore. Does what he needs to do. Goes back into the water. Splash, 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 splash. Gets back into the boat. Now the priest thinks to himself, you know, hey, you know, nature calls. I'm ready too. But he's a little intimidated. And he, he sees what his brothers and, and the Lord did, and, he, and he's starting to wrestle in, internally, and he's praying to God and saying, Lord, you know, I have just as much faith as my brothers in Christ. So in faith, I'm going to go, and I'm going to do the same thing that they did. So he steps out of the boat, and he sinks to the bottom. They have to take him and pull him back into the boat. He's soaking wet. He's depressed. You know, this is a crisis of faith for him. So the evangelist says to the minister, Feeling bad for, the, for their brother, he says, maybe we should have told them where the rocks are. <laughs> so we're going to talk about faith this morning. Verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Again, we ended in chapter 10 with, the just shall live by faith. Spoken of originally by Habakkuk the prophet, repeated in Hebrews, and repeated in uh, different books of the New Testament, actually so powerful that it sparked the Reformation. The just shall live by faith. 
We're just. We're declared righteous because we have faith in what Jesus did on the cross so long ago. We have faith that what he did is going to to destroy our sins. It's taken away our sins so that when we die, we have immediate access into heaven with the Father. So the just shall live by faith. And the just in general, right, those of us who are believers in Christ, we do live by faith. Faith has to be part of who we are as believers. And then the last thing, the very last thing in chapter 10 was that because we live by faith, because we are the faithful, we don't draw back. We don't go back into whatever we were in before we became believers. Now, to the Hebrew Christians, going back could mean going back to the temple sacrifices, things that couldn't save them anymore. And again, we made the application for believers today. There's nothing that the world has or where we've come from that we can go back to. We've been perfected in Christ. But what is faith? Well, let's start with the dictionary. Now, remind you, this is a secular dictionary uh, explanation. It's Webster's New World Dictionary. There's a few uh, understandings or meanings for faith, but I'm going to touch on the first one and the fifth one. So the first one is faith, unquestioning belief that does not require proof or evidence. doesn't mean that there isn't proof or evidence. It just means it's not required. The fifth uh, definition is complete trust, reliance, and confidence. And the object of our faith is God. We trust God. We rely upon God. And we have confidence in God. Now, I'm going to prove to all the skeptics who may have come here this morning that you exercise faith every single day. So, I'm looking out, and uh, nobody really looks uneasy. You all look, even in the balcony, you look relaxed, you look not scared, that you don't have anxiety, but you're sitting on pews that somebody built a long time ago. By faith, you're accepting that the builders use proper materials. See a few of you bouncing now. But you wouldn't have done that unless I brought it to your attention. This morning, even if you're a skeptic, you are living by faith, by sitting in those pews. Now, I've got two more object lessons. Here's a $20 bill. It's because I don't have anything more in my wallet. So this is what I can show you. But this is paper money. This is monopoly money. In and of itself, it's not worth anything. However, every day you use something like this to go to the store, and you buy things. And you leave with a little, it's getting smaller and smaller, your bag of stuff that you can take out of the store. But by faith, you use this, and you purchase things. And the clerk exercise even more faith by accepting your monopoly money and giving you stuff that he worked hard to put on his shelves. So your faith is in what? The United States government. Now, (laughs) this is a credit card. But really what it is, it's a piece of plastic. Probably not even worth a penny. It's got my name on it, my account number, which I'm not going to reveal. (laughs) it's got a magnetic strip on the back. When my wife takes this and goes to the store, (laughs) she walks out with a bunch of packages and security doesn't shop her. It doesn't stop her, excuse me. It's a little slip there. Sometimes I wish they would. (laughs) But by faith, she goes shopping and she has faith And the merchant has faith 
In who? No, actually the bank. Seriously, it's the bank. When you lay this baby down, slap it down on a counter, it's your faith is in the bank that they're going to provide the merchant and that you're going to be able to take those. You're not going to say declined. So this is what's going on. We exercise faith every single day, and there's an object of that faith. The sad thing is that gang members, we talked about praying about Chicago, every day they exercise faith. They may be doing things that are evil and criminal, but they exercise faith every day when they have rival factions, when they you know, shoot each other and harm each other because they have faith in that paper monopoly money that if they get that, it's worth it to them to destroy another life made in the image of God because there's enough Benjamins flowing, because they can use that to build their empires. Even they exercise faith. So every single day, whether you're a skeptic, an atheist, agnostic, or a believer, you exercise faith. The question is, what are you going to put your faith in? Now, what is God's word declaring about faith in God's economy. We spoke about our economy. Let's talk about God's economy. Number one, faith is the substance. I'm going to use some synonyms here just to really hammer it home. The substance or the realization or the assurance of things hoped for. Hope implies a future desire, but it demands, faith demands that we act on it now, that we behave on it now before we receive that desire. Two, it's the evidence. Another word for evidence is proof. The proof of things not seen. Another apparent counterintuitive statement. This doesn't make sense in the temporal realm. I don't see it, but I'm going to, again, behave. I'm going to act on it prior to its being proven to me. In God's economy, believing is seeing. The world says seeing is believing, but I think I made the case on Wednesday about watching videos you know, whether police videos or YouTube videos, and you think you know what's going on until you get the transcripts. Then you say, oh, I thought I saw that. The eyes can be deceived very easily. So believing is seeing in God's economy. Now, does this mean, this is important, that we have blind faith, foolish faith, fanciful faith? Does this mean if I believe hard enough that the tooth fairy will really actually exist? Absolutely not, because... Everything hinges on the object of that faith. We also have to understand this, that faith is only one aspect of our spiritual belief system. There is room in our belief system, in our toolbox, for proof. That's there too. And I submit to you, they work together. I'll give you an example. Prophecy. Prophecy. I was blessed to be able to witness to somebody this week, two people, and I spoke about prophecy, and I spoke what the Bible says about things that are happening in our day that could have not possibly been predicted 2,000 years, 3,000 years or more ago. No way they could have had this information. God, when he speaks prophetically, he says, this will happen basically tomorrow. This will happen in 100 years from now. This will happen in 1,000 years from now. This will happen, and you won't even understand the technology, the people, but I'm telling you, write it down because it's for them in the future. Declaration regarding archaeology. How many articles, articles have I come up and read to you about the Philistine, about the Davidic kingdom, the Sol Sol Solomonic kingdom? That's not an easy one to say. But 
For so long, the naysayers have said the Bible's wrong, the Bible's wrong. I'll tell you what, the archaeologists know that the Bible's true. There's a whole section under biblical archaeology. Again, these things were written many years ago. Cities have been buried under feet of rubble. New civilizations has, have been built over it. But you get a guy with a shovel and a brush and uh, a pickaxe and all that kind of neat equipment, and he finds stuff and coins and insignias from civilizations long ago. There's proof, too. Biology, the Old Testament, before the electron microscope, spoke about quarantining, spoke about leprosy, we understand now as Hansen's disease. Oh, I, loved, I love talking to skeptics. And it's not because I'm trying to dominate them. I love it because I want them to start thinking. I want the wheels to start turning and say, gee, I've never heard this before. Pastors need to do their jobs. Ministers need to do their jobs and their homework. Not just say stuff, but to build a case. Peter tells us that. Right? The hope that is in us. Why? Through uh, apologia, you know, or through understanding and through doing research and not just saying stuff. Astronomy, and we can go on forever, but faith is a non-negotiable aspect in that toolbox. We can't sense it with the five senses. I submit to you, though, faith is a sixth sense, in a sense, in that it navigates the spiritual world. It navigates God's world. And it's funny because we look at this as the real world because, look, I'm, I'm alive, right? I, I can think, I can, I can reason, I, I can interact, I'm alive. Look, flesh and blood, this is the real world. Is it really? Because when we die, where do we go? And that lasts for eternity. So I submit to you that the sixth sense navigates the eternal realm. Oh, I really look forward to teaching this this morning. I hope you're inspired because I'm really excited about this. Verse 2, it says, For by it, for by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. Elders loosely translated, believers of old, which we're going to cover, and we, we exercise faith every day as well. They obtained a good testimony or a good witness. Now, before we embark on this journey, I want you to understand that the people we're going to speak about were sinners, right? Because of sin, we need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. But it's really cool how God looks at us. He looks at the finished work. He looks at how, what he can do in our lives. I love that about him. He's going to use you in spite of you. He's going to use John in spite of John, Terry in spite of Terry, right? He's going to use all of you in spite of you. Sometimes my wife and I kick back and we, we sit on our deck and we say, God uses us. It's amazing. We know what we came from. We know that we're still sinners and he still uses us in spite of us. So I really want to encourage you this morning, before you start looking at these people like they're superheroes or untouchable, they didn't think that about themselves. Jesus still had to die for their sins. They still had frailties, disabilities, impediments, and God still used them. So I will tell you that every single person, I don't care who you are, care how old you are, how old, how young, God can use you. So as we go through this, insert yourself into what we're going to speak about this morning. And this morning, I'm only going to cover six verses. This is such a powerful chapter. I need to break it up to do it justice. I'm not going to run through this, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Verse 3, it says that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That's something else. The worlds were framed by the word of God he spoke creation into existence. 
Whether we're speaking about the Latin ex nihilo or the Hebrew bara, it means out of nothing. Now, I think it's funny that the big bangers, right? Big bang and not God, but big bang. They believe the same thing we believe except for the source. They believe in angular momentum. They believe in the conservation of energy. All the things that we believe, all the physical sciences, the way things are rotating, it's all fun stuff. But they don't believe in the source. They believe, or we believe, let's start with us, an all-powerful God, a brilliant, omniscient, outside of time and space, created everything, set it in motion. They believe that something came from nothing, that randomness came from design. I love watching, whether it's some science, scientific nature channel or whatever and you know they talk in this real professorish voice about millions and millions of years ago and the evolution of the water buffalo and the cantilevered muscles on the back of his neck and his back and it just happened by accident and through the, and they talk about design I'm like Heather did you catch that he said design let me listen for how many times he says design how does nothingness create design when nothingness is a force that has no intelligence it has no order Design, if you look in the dictionary, do it, it comes from a designer. Mutations, explosions, um, accidents create good things. Where? Doesn't that defy the law of entropy? You know, when I'm standing around and I think about my body and everyday life, I'm not waiting for a mutation, an explosion, or an accident to happen in my body and think that that could be a good thing. If something like that happens to me, I'm going to the doctor. I submit to you that they have more faith than I do. You believe that? Oh, that takes a huge leap of faith. Well, let's just put some more zeros at the end of the, the, the years and maybe it's plausible. I don't know. I don't think so. This is the things which are seen are not made of things visible or things that seem or things that appear. The invisible God spoke visi the visible realm into existence. It says, sometimes the word is lagos. Here, the word is hrema, his spoken word. He just said, atoms, neutrons, protons, electrons, start spinning around the nucleus. Cool. All right, let's get together in a formation. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. You know, he just spoke it and it happened. You know, I hope that when I get to heaven, I get to see he kind of does it for me. Lord, do that again, because I didn't see it. I didn't witness it. But boy, that's got to be something to behold. Imagine the angels like, oh, ooh. It's like a light show, like a, a firework display for them. God just spoke, Rema, everything into existence. I love that. I mean, we can also look at this um, for thousands of years before the electron microscope. Men had suspicions about the building blocks of life and most of the time that they were wrong with the electron microscope and then the scanning electron microscope and these incredible inventions in the 20th century, they got to see deeper and deeper and deeper into the cellular level and the atomic level. And like, whoa, imagine seeing that for the first time. I can't wait to tell the world what I'm seeing in this piece of equipment. People are going to be floored, and we were, right? The building blocks of life. Very exciting. So there's invisible things that make up the visible realm of reality. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, 
God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. Cain and Abel. We can find this in Genesis 4. They were brothers. Abel offered a satisfactory sacrifice to God. But Cain's was substandard. And I submit to you that Cain knew his sacrifice was substandard. And if he didn't know, God helped him to understand it. I want to read... We're going to talk about Abel. He's a, he's a hero of faith. But Cain, to me, is a fascinating person. And I want to talk a little bit about Cain first. Something striking and applicable to all of us that God said to Cain. It isn't every day that we pick up Genesis. But boy, this is a lot of really good stuff in there. So God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7, he says, there's three parts to this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Rewards. God wants us to be successful. Cain. I want you to do better. You can do better. I know you can do it. He also says, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is to rule over you. See, this is the tragic situation when we allow sin to totally encompass us, to be totally immersed in us, to totally take us over. Right? Despair and tragedy are the only things that come from that. And the last thing he says, but you shall master it. You shall rule over it. You need to have success and mastery over that sin and you'll be successful and you'll be rewarded for it and it won't harm you. Two points, again, before we get to Abel. Number one, God spoke to sinners directly after the fall. Now, there's different doctrines out there and at times, I, you know, the Lord brings it to my mind. I have to touch on it. Five-point Calvinism. It's not from the scripture. It's a man-made doctrine. The T in tulip, the first part of it is total depravity, where a man cannot respond to God after the fall. Well, according to this, not only did man respond, well, he wasn't regenerate, but they had a discussion, and God was, was urging him to do better. And I think what's encouraging to us as well, Cain, he murdered his brother, but God expected better things from, from him, and he knew he could do it. If the Bible says that we can do it, then we can do it. God doesn't dangle things in front of us that are unattainable. Whatever he says that we can do in the scripture to achieve, we can. And that's the blessing to us. Two, Cain was a jealous person. And I tell you, jealousy is a hideous sin. And I've seen jealousy. I've seen what jealousy can do to a church. Instead of doing better, the person is always looking at what somebody else has. Maybe their wealth, their looks, their educational level. They're always looking outside and they want to destroy the competition. And that's what Cain did. He destroyed the competition where God said, you could be accepted just like your brother. So if you have jealous tendencies, really take that to heart because jealousy is destructive. It's really destructive. And I've seen it wreak havoc firsthand. Jealousy is ugly. It's a very ugly sin. Now let's get to Abel, who is, incidentally, our first profile in faith this morning. Abel displayed faith in worship and sacrifice. A few points to ponder. Number one, Jesus refers to Abel as righteous in Matthew 23. He actually speaks about Abel by name. Two, Abel offered an excellent sacrifice by faith. He was in tune to God and he was obedient to God. And we have the ability, brothers and sisters, to be pleasing to God. I love that. We have the ability to please him. And really it doesn't take much. We just have to allow him to, to, to guide our lives, you know, to give it up to him, to lay down our will. 
right? And, and stop holding on to everything so tightly. Three, Abel was the first martyr. He died as a result of his faith and an obedience. And it shows that those who please God, their lives are not always ducky. They're not always wonderful. However, we're going to talk about the reward system later on. There are rewards. God always rewards his faithful. But look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. Many solid men and women of God died for their faith. Let's look at imagery and types for a moment before we go on. Number one, Cain was a picture of the religious world. Not really concerned what God wants, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to offer to God what I want to offer to God. I'm going to pick a religion that fits my lifestyle. I'm going to do things that are easy for me. That's what religion does. Religion, religion doesn't ask God what God wants. Religion just does whatever it wants and says he'll have to accept it. That was Cain. And even when God said to him, do better, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to kill my brother. Well, where's that going to get you? Abel was a picture of a relationship with God. He did it God's way. And I think we've seen over the years, if we look in our history books, that religion oftentimes is the, is the killer of faith. In the Dark Ages, who was the biggest persecutor of Christians? The church at the time. Religion killed the man or woman of faith. Religion is humanistic. It, it does it the way man wants to do it, where a relationship is two parties engaged in a relationship where both give and take, right? Two in imagery. Abel offered a lamb. It, was, it points to Jesus Christ as the lamb of God, the only way to God, right? Abel offered a lamb, and it was accepted. And it was a type of the Christ, wasn't it? Verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch was taken to heaven directly. Imagine what that must be like where God just says, you know, and we'll talk about the rapture. It's a type of the rapture. Not much is said about Enoch. Jude refers to him in the book of Jude. We covered that when we taught Jude. Uh, Genesis 5 really has the bulk of the material. Enoch lived for 365 years, walked with God, and then God took him right to heaven. Remember Elijah the prophet, chariots of fire? They separated Elisha from Elijah. Elisha, you still have work to do. Elijah, we're taking you to heaven. He was faithful, and God took him. But what about Elijah? What do we know about Elijah? running from Queen Jezebel after that victorious display against the 300 prophets of Baal on the mountaintop. And Je Jezebel says, I'm going to kill him. Well, she was the queen, but look what just happened with God. And Elijah ran and ran and ran and ran until he couldn't run anymore. And God said, what are you doing here? Oh, nobody cares. You know, Queen Jezebel wants to kill me. I'm the only one. And God said, listen, let's, let's get this right. He put everything back in perspective. He refreshed them and sent them back, okay? But he was a righteous man. So we have our faults and frailties too, and God can still use us. Elijah was taken right to heaven. So Enoch and Elijah were types of the rapture, right? Something in the Old Testament that gets fulfilled in the New Testament era. One day the Lord will come for his people. He will take us directly in his time to be with him. So Enoch, 
Enoch is the second profile in faith. He was faith in living. He lived for God. Now check this out. Some people think that's weird. Some Christians think that's weird, living for God. Wow. Now, help me get this straight. We're believers. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus. But we don't want too much of God because, you know, there's some extreme people out there. They're fundamentalists. And some of your carnal Christian friends will tell you, you don't need to be like that. Don't listen to that. You don't have to be. But here's the thing. We're believers. We supposedly love God. One day we're going to knock on the door and expect him to open the door to his home. We're going to live with him forever. But we want to live on, on this world for ourselves until the day we die and then hope that he opens the door for us. I think that's weird. Now, it doesn't mean to be an extremist. It doesn't mean to be, and there's Christians out there that are so over the top. It's a pretense that they're distasteful to the world. Let the Lord's light shine through you. However, we should be living for God. How, what does that look like? It looks like carrying on your everyday life and using biblical principles, talking to him, working through problems with him. And it's, it's, it's not uh, forced. It's not contrived. So living for God. Enoch was faith in living. And the Lord took him. He translated him. I submit to you that he's not, he does not regret one minute of anybody making fun of him, anybody saying anything to him. He's been there for thousands of years in God's home, enjoying himself. Faith in living. Now, one other thing that we have to look at too, in big denominations. So if a big denomination does this, well, it must be right. Some of the big Christian denominations are saying that Genesis is an allegory. Genesis is a story. Why? Because they get pressure from the world. And they're too much of a coward to stand up to the world. You know what the unbelievers are looking for? Something that we have that the world doesn't have. Every time we cower to the world, you think an unbeliever is attracted to that kind of Jesus, that weak Jesus? I don't think so. Jesus, Paul, Peter, Jude, the Bible writers, the New Testament Bible writers referred to Genesis and the people in Genesis as actual people, not an allegory. Just because we don't maybe not understand it 100%, just because the things that God left out, we can only speculate about, we're not sure about, doesn't mean that it didn't happen and it didn't exist. God gave us enough information that we needed to live our faith. Remember in John 21, uh, John, the disciple, said, and Jesus did many more things than this. He probably healed many more people, he, many more teachings, but he says, I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain what he did while he was on the earth. So John and Luke and Mark and Matthew had to be selective in their information. Otherwise, they'd still be writing. Hey, how you doing over there, John? Oh, I'm almost done. <laughs> no. Verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, number one, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently, se diligently seek him, number two. Now this directly correlates to Enoch and Abel, this two-pronged test about pleasing God and faith, and two criteria must be met. The first cri criterion is that we must believe that God is, that he exists. So number one, we attest to his existence by faith. And some will say, why would he put that in the scripture? We're Christians, of course we believe that he is. Well, what's sad is that we can get so caught up in the Christian community 
we can get so caught up in the Western church and its culture that our lives may tell a different story. And I think every believer at some point has to look in the mirror and ask, does my life reflect that I do believe that he is? Or am I doing things on a daily basis that shows my unsaved friends and family that I don't believe that he is? Very simple. That's what I love about the Bible. It's just so simple. Jesus speaking to who? The religious leaders in the Gospels. Religious leaders, pious men, pretentious. He quoted Isaiah 29, 13, where it says, God says, these people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, these were the religious men of the days. Jesus called them hypocrites because of it. They didn't have a relationship. They pretended. Their lives did not reflect that they loved God or that they loved people. They were harsh. They were judgmental, right? So we can live a life that shows that we trust in everything else but the Lord. And it can tell the world that we don't believe that he is. He is means he's a part of my life. I have a relationship with him. And it will show. Number two, the second prong is that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Now, Jeremiah, I just, I double-checked the scripture. I'm like, Isaiah 29, 13, Jeremiah 29, 13. In Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with a whole heart. It's got to be real. Just like you want that promotion, just like you want that relationship that's going to do everything for you, with that same effort, seek me, God says. I'm better than those things. I can satisfy so much better. So seek me with a whole heart. Old Testament, New Testament says the same thing. No difference. Now that word, diligently seek him, I looked it up, it means to crave. When I think of crave, it comes from within. right? It's visceral. It's inside. I crave God. I want him. If I don't understand something about the Bible, I will harass those pastors and elders until they give me an answer. That's a good thing. Or we'll put it up on our church Facebook wall, and it's been, it's been great. You know, Bible questions and answers up there, and a lot, of, a lot of people are blessed by it. But two, in believing he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, we do what? We attest to God's goodness, to his character, to his fairness by faith, because he rewards those that crave him. And I've been known in counseling at times to say, you're not giving it enough effort. It's not about work, doing something for the church. It isn't about that. It's about don't complain. Don't tell me your life is out of line when you're double-minded and you're really not seeking God with a whole heart. That's important. Now, what type of reward? This is important too because there's doctrines that tell you that your reward will all be material. There's some famous preachers that'll say, oh, just think about that mansion down at the end of Elm Street and just keep visualizing it. And do I sound like somebody? And eventually you'll have it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Abel was killed directly because he pleased God. Fox's Book of Martyrs, many hundreds and thousands of believers were murdered for their faith. Enoch was raptured. It's God's choice. It's his decision how he's going to do that. So you might say, well, what's the reward there? The reward, I submit to you, are spiritual rewards. Now, the carnal mind says, I live here. What am I going to do with spiritual rewards? And then God says, well, most of them will be laid up in heaven. <sighs> Even worse. That's the way the carnal mind thinks. I need something right now. 
Well, I'll tell you that, that I was driving along in the area that I live, and God spoke to me and said, pull into the driveway. There was somebody that lived there that was terminal. And I first said to him, and I do this, we have these conversations. I'm like, I wasn't invited. He's like, I'm inviting you, pull into the driveway. Well, what if they have dogs on the property and they're not friendly? And this is the conversations that we have. Eventually, I submitted and I did it. And I'm not going to go into details because it's not necessary, but I was so blessed by that encounter. And then I went back again the next day. And God, he's always right. And I have these discussions and arguments with him, and I always lose. But when I lose, I am blessed beyond measure. And here's the deal. When we're blessed spiritually, see, when you get a, a, a high physically, when you get those endorphins that kick in, it's temporary. It doesn't do a whole lot for you, and it's very fleeting and limited. And we often get ourselves in trouble chasing those highs, by the way, in many different areas of life. But when God uses you spiritually, I will tell you that it's, in, it's from, from the inside and it spills out to the outside. It actually affects you physically as well. And that is a reward like no other. You know, when I ask and I say to the body, you need to serve, you need to pray about getting involved, it's not because of control. It's because I want you to experience the same blessing that many other Christians in this place have experienced. You know, I remember a brother who wasn't saved that long, and when we did the Sandy outreach, he was in tears. It was an experience that he's still talking about a year later, how blessed he was to minister to those people down the shore who were destitute, who were, what am I going to do? And they prayed, and people just showed up at their door with gift cards from, um, you know, home improvement stores and food and helping them with their garbage. These people were blown away. So the person who gets ministered to is blown away, and the person ministering is blown away. It is a, an experience like no other. And I want every Christian to experience that. What a shame it would be as a believer if we keep walking in both worlds and we never get to experience on this earth that blessing, that spiritual blessing. And then maybe we get to heaven, but we missed out on so much here. So there's a lot of rewards that we can get. There's a lot of rewards that we can get. Now, I'll say this as we close. It's been said that a watched pot never boils. It's one of those old adages. I would counter that and say a forced faith never flourishes. And sometimes, let's talk about faith. Let's talk about our faith. And there's some that they put so much pressure on themselves. And literally, they come back next week, next Sunday, next Sunday. Didn't happen yet. You know, they're watching that pot to boil. They're forcing themselves, and they're not letting God work in their lives. So on the one end, they're, put, they're being, don't be so hard on yourself. This isn't the world. This is God's economy. He's not like that. He doesn't have a quota system. Isn't that weird? Like when you go to work, everybody, they want to know how much stuff that you could produce at, at your work, how many things you can sell. You know what God says? I don't care how much you sell. I don't care how much you produce. I want to see your effort. And if your effort is good, let me worry about that other stuff. And we'll see that some of these heroes of faith didn't produce anything, that they preached their hearts out and they, they ministered and, and nothing happened. But the reward was God's reward for them. So on the one end, we put pressure on ourselves. On the other end, we give God an expiration date. It's like, Lord, okay, today's the first. You've got 30 days to give me that faith. 30 days. And God's like, oh, what am I going to do, Gabriel? I only got 30 days to work. It doesn't work like that either. Don't put pressure on yourself and don't put pressure on God. 
let it flourish naturally. I talked about the mighty oak, that they all start with a sapling or a seed or something. One day it just happens. What are you going through this morning? Is it bigger than God? Is it consuming you to the point where you've lost your perspective? Where you're, you're upside down, you're, you're inverted? Give God a chance. Trust him completely. Give your trust totally to him in this situation and watch him work. And try to take your fingers out of it. I know that's a problem that I have as well. And then the question is, well, what am I waiting for, Pastor Joe? Let me quote Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When my wife and I first walked into a Calvary, we didn't have any faith, none. But as we started going, we're like, this is interesting. Never heard this before. And we were going and going, and the word changed our hearts little by little. It wasn't observable day to day. But one day, looking back 20 years, like, wow, yeah, God did a great work. And again, let me quote another scripture so that nobody can boast about this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that says, For grace, you and me, we have been saved by faith. And he says, not of yourselves. Don't get a big head about this. It is a gift of God, not of works. We don't work our way to faith, lest anyone should boast. God levels the playing field for everyone. He gives it to us as a gift because he loves us. Here's a measure of faith. And over time, that measure of faith is going to grow and become beautiful and produce fruit. Watch. But enjoy me. Enjoy your relationship with God. And slowly watch it happen. Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to inspire you because the scripture is inspirational. Maybe read this portion again, read the chapter again, and really enjoy the next several Sundays we're going to take in the faith chapter. Let it move you. Let it change you. Let it do a great work. Let it grow naturally through the trials, through time, maturing into a beautiful process, and don't compare yourself with another. Don't look at somebody else as your measuring rod. Look to Jesus. In due time, he will give you what you're asking for. Pray for more faith. Pray for more of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, in Luke 17, here are the disciples, the A-team, walking with Jesus. And in Luke 17, they said, Lord, increase our faith. Even they had trouble and struggles. It's okay if you do. In Mark, chapter, or Mark 9, it was an exorcism. A father uh, came, asked Jesus to exorcise his little boy. He had a demon. And Jesus said, do you believe? He said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Seems like a contradictory statement, but it wasn't. You know, I believe, Lord, otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you about this. I'd be taking my son somewhere else. But help me with my unbelief. I'm struggling, Lord. See, a lot of heads nodding. And that's sometimes where we are. And we have to, don't quit, don't give up. Ask him, help me with my unbelief, Lord. Strengthen me. I'm faltering right now. You don't think I have my moments? You don't think I say, Lord, how am I going to get out of this one? And, and sometimes God allows me to be up against the wall because I would try to fix it myself. And he's like, whenever you're ready, I'm here. Talk to me. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to help you. It's part of that relationship. So as we go through this, my prayer is that we ask the Lord to tailor our faith to us personally and individually. Let's pray.